From VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Circle of Willis with part two of my conversation with clinical scientist Sue Johnson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Sue Johnson, inventor of emotionally focused therapy, or EFT, which is an evidence-based therapy for couples that she's been developing and refining for more than 30 years. How do you develop and refine a psychological intervention? Well, on the one hand, you spend a lot of time working with your intervention targets. In Sue's case, that's romantic couples in distress. On the other hand, you put a lot of time and energy into subjecting the intervention to scientific study, not only to see whether it works, but to pick apart how it works, to see what the mechanisms are. Sue's work has influenced thousands of therapists and couples over the past several decades, and her work continues to this day as Professor Emeritus at the University of Ottawa, as founder of the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy, and as inductee into the very prestigious Order of Canada in recognition of her profound service to her adopted country. In the last episode, I mentioned her books Hold Me Tight and Love Sense. I advise you to check them out if you're interested in sprucing up your relationship a little bit and learning a little about what Sue calls the science of love. Sue is a first-generation college student who grew up working in a pub in Chatham, Kent, southeast of London. I think you can hear that background in her, in the way she allows herself a sort of, I don't know, straight-talky candor and accessibility. But don't let that accessibility fool you. Sue is one of our deepest and most sophisticated thinkers. All right? So here in part two, we dive a little deeper into the scientific side of Sue's life and into the development of EFT. And... We talk a little about what life's all about. Wisdom, folks. So I went and did a a doctorate in counseling. And when I look at it, I was nuts. I was like, I was like a starving kid who suddenly gets a meal put in front of them. I took twice the number of courses I had to take. I took all the courses in clinical psych as well as counseling and as well as some in social work. And well, you were, you were hungry. I was hungry. Like. And then I started working with couples at this clinic in town. <clears throat> and I'd run groups. I'd done individual therapy. I'd done families at the Maples. But when I started working with couples, I was just mesmerized. I was totally didn't know what to do. I couldn't find anything in the library that helped. I found a whole bunch of stuff about teaching people to problem solve and make deals about the behaviors they were going to exchange. And then I found a whole bunch of stuff about giving them insight, analytic insight into their past. None of that helped at all. So I was flying by the seat of my pants, but I was completely caught and fascinated. And I started working with these couples and I started taping them and watching the tapes and learning from the couples. And then Les Greenberg was, became my advisor. 
because he and was interested in psychotherapy and, and process research and how change happened. And also one of the only people at the time who's taking emotion yes. seriously. He, he basically said emotion <laughs> matters. Yeah. And so gradually from watching all these couples and these tapes, I started writing down what I did that seemed to work. And when I think about it, the first manual was like eight pages. That was it. And just to show you how driven I was, I started doing it and it started getting more systematic. And Les said, well, you have to do a thesis. So I want you to do this process study, you know, uh -huh. of, of individual therapy. How it works. Yes. And I, I said, no, I want to take this little manual thing and I want to do an outcome study. And he said, no, I don't do outcome studies and I'm not interested in that. And I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to get the money for it. I'm going to do it. And he said, well, oh, all right then. And I can't even tell you, it, it was completely ridiculous, stupid and insane. Uh, what was? Of you the to whole do that? thing. I mean, the whole. <laughs> well, and also, can, can, I, can I just, can we put this in historical perspective? There was a, nothing a out there. Well, well, so what was available at that time for oh, couples therapy? Um, there was, there was Dick Stewart talking about making deals with people. You do the washing up and uh, right, you so, give so me more. exchange. Uh, yep. And was um, this part of the behavioral marital therapy yes, program Neil too? Jacobson. Neil Jacobson. Who I used to drive down to watch in Seattle. He let me sit in the back of his. Yeah, you know, um, I worked with Neil for a, for a while. Well, he let me sit in the. <laughs> you're Funny with Neil. I phoned Neil up and I said, I'm a graduate student at UBC and I, I'd like to come sit in the back of your supervisions. I know you have clinical supervisions once a week. I'll drive down. Yeah. Would you let me? And he says, no, go away. So I went to a conference somewhere around this time. Um, Neil Jacobson stood up and gave a talk and he made pronouncements all over the place. About so BMT. you've got to understand that I was on fire. Yeah, I, I'm getting that picture. Like, so I didn't have any sense of how ridiculous this was on some yeah. level, okay? That's, that's, the, that's the utility of naivete. Yeah, okay. Right? That's how so, it, when it works so for us. So Neil Jacobson, at the end of his big presentation, stands up and says, are there any questions? So this is me, okay? <laughs> I stand up and say, yes, I have six. And this is what, 1985, 1983? No, yeah, somewhere yeah, like somewhere somewhere there. In, yeah. So I said, yes, I have six. I remember, <laughs> I, remember I can't remember what they were, six but I know questions. there were six. And he <laughs> says... And he's amused, you see. He says, sure. oh, you have six. And I say, yes, I have six. And I ask him all these questions. He can't answer any of them. Do you don't remember any of the questions? I, Damn it. I, no, I can't. I can't remember. So I say, I say, I'm on the edge of my I'm seat I'm very sorry, here. but it, it was something like, I'm very sorry, but this, your theory says this, but what I see you is doing than that, and that doesn't fit with the theory. And also, I don't understand how this works because it completely goes against this and that. And so could you explain to me why this would be a good thing to do when, in fact, it seems to me obvious? And I was, the nuns taught me. The, the nuns, nuns taught me. Tell Now you, the nuns are hounding Neil you, Jacobson. Now the proxy. nuns. The nuns taught me how to make a logical argument. And Neil Jacobson looked at me like, like, like. It could go two ways with he Neil. He looked either, at me either he would be like, like he wanted enraged to, or he, he was enraged. He was enraged. <laughs> and then he, outside at coffee break, he comes up to me and he says, who are you? I remember yeah. that because I was scared would, to death. He would learn. And I said, I'm the lady from Vancouver who asked to come and sit in the back of your clinical supervisions. And you said, no. He said, hmm, you can come. 
<laughs> so I started well, going. So, so he was enraged, but he invited you to his. Yes, because I think he was so intrigued. Yeah. So I started going down and sitting in the back of his supervisions, and he uh, and he agreed to help me do this study, which he thought was a joke. I mean, he thought it was a joke. He said, "Oh, I'll help you. You know, I know. You know, f- five good." CBT therapist in Vancouver, they'll do the CBT bit while you do this. What do you call it? This funny little emotion what thing. What did you, you, did you call it? We called e- it emotionally, emotionally focused. focused therapy. Yes. So what do you call it? That's what you call it. So I know I'll help you if you like, but it was very patronizing. And he would make a joke of the fact that I disagree with him. Like he'd say something to his students, like you can make deals for affairs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can make a deal for an affair. And then he'd look at me and he'd say, but I, bet you don't agree with that do you sue and i would yeah, of course stand, no, and i would stand idea in the universe well i would stand up and what say are you talking about absolutely not of course i don't agree with it yeah. it completely doesn't work yeah. and i don't see why you so then he would laugh you see and all his students would laugh and i was just when i think about it there was no real validation except for the fact that i would go in and work with these couples and they'd get better well, that's the, that's the proof in the pudding, right? So we did this study, okay? And I thought if we got any results at all, it would be really good because EFT in the form it was there in those days was pretty damn basic. Yeah. We did this study and it was damned hard. I mean, I nearly ended up in the hospital. We did 45. We had a control group, uh, um, 15 in the EFT group 15 in the behavioral group and the behavioral group the bmt was done very well and neil sent somebody up from seattle to make sure it was done well and we had a weight control and i nearly ended up in the hospital because it was ridiculous and i had an amazing helper called gisla and i don't know where she went in life but we killed ourselves we worked all the hours god made for (laughs) seven months and we did the whole damn thing in seven months so I don't know what I expected, but I did the stats. And in those days, you had to run off these sheets of data yeah. from, right? Yeah. So I remember printing all this stuff off at night. And I look at the results and I go, no, there's a mistake. That, that's impossible. There's a mistake. So I think, oh, shit, I, there's a mistake. Where the hell's my... So by this time, I've done a kind, all kinds of stats classes, right? So I go back, I pour over it, I can't find any mistakes. Go, but what the hell? It must have been entered wrong. I go back, I look, I can't find any mistakes. So, okay, just run it again. Get the, I ran it three times. I thought, shit, this stuff fucking works. <laughs> so, 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 no, brother. So then. How did Neil take that? Well, that was really funny because I remember. Les Greenberg and I, I'd written it up in my, in my thesis by this point. Right? I was about to graduate and Neil came up to Vancouver to give a workshop. And Les said to me, who's going to tell him? Am I going to tell him? Are you going to tell him? I said, I don't know. I don't want to tell him. I'm the student. You're supposed to be yeah, the thesis advisor. Because he's going to freak out. I know. He said, well, you tell him. I said, all right, I'll tell him. I'll tell him. So then we're in a pub. And Neil's just done a big workshop. Which is workshop. perfect for you. Yes, it's yeah, just perfect. It's your, you're on home turf. Yeah, so um, we've just done, Neil's just done this big workshop and he's got a triple scotch, which Jeez. is a lot, a triple yeah, scotch. That's, that's a good amount So of he's scotch. sitting there in front of him and he says to me, again, it's very patronizing, right? He says, 
because, you know, I'm female and I'm really uh, used yeah. to, as an English working class woman, I'm used to being underestimated, right? Right, yes. right, right. So he says to me with this sort of patronizing voice, he says, oh, Sue, and how's the little study going? Oh, right? God, you know, right? stop how's, it. How's it. And I said, it's done. He said, it's done? Because he told me, you'll never finish this study. You just can't do it, right? Um, he said, it's done, but you only started it seven months ago. I said, yes, it's, it's done. It's done and it's analyzed. So then he sort of clears his throat a bit and he says, oh, and what were the results? <laughs> and I said, um, um, both CBT and your version of CBT and EFT were uh, better than controls on all variables and EFT was significantly um, better than CBT in effectiveness on all variables as well, except one. I think there was one that it wasn't. Yeah. And he said, oh, like it didn't matter at all. And then the game changed and he wanted me to come to Seattle and he wanted to, me to tell him what I did that was different from him so that he could tack it on the end of his interventions. Yeah. And I said, you can't do that because I come from a totally different frame than you. And you can't, it, you can't just tack a technique on the it's end. It's not that way. It's a completely different paradigm. It's a completely different way of thinking. And I think that's an issue that I've always had with my behavioral colleagues. They think in techniques. They think in terms of manipulating people from the outside in. And they want to just smack another technique on CBT for couples is based on economic theory of relationships, which is all about profit, loss, cost. Yeah. That's what it's about. And I said, couples yeah, don't work totally like that. So then, the see, his, the work. issue is, though, he would say to me, I would say, couples don't work like that. And he would say to me, well, then how do you know how couples work? And then in, in Hold Me Tight, I actually put this in. This is one of the most significant things that happened in, in my life. I went to a conference after my thesis was in and I had my doctorate and I think I'd already got the job at Ottawa University and the thesis was getting published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psych and we were in Banff listening to Neil and Neil stood up and basically said relationships are a deal and you can negotiate for anything, they're bargains. Yeah. So Les Greenberg and I went into this bar and Les says to me, well, what's wrong with what he said? And I said, everything's wrong with what he said. He doesn't understand relationships. They're not just, you can't just manipulate people's behaviors. There's, there's something intrinsic to relationships. Yeah, he doesn't understand the relationships. relationship is its own reward. Right. So he doesn't understand relationships. So Les said, well, what, what if, if relationships aren't bargains, what are they? And I said, they're emotional bonds, silly. So this gets to the broader framework. So, so you know, when I think about that time, that, that mid-80s time, so many things are about to happen mm -hmm. in, in psychology generally around this frame well, of attachment. But, but you see, it wasn't happening. Attachment was for about mothers and infants, and that's all. That's right. So as I sit there in that pub, it was 1986. 1986. As as I sit, no, it was 1985. As I sit there in that pub, the words came out of my mouth. They're emotional bombs. And suddenly my brain, 
leapt to this stuff that I'd read about John Bowlby. And I went back home and I dived into Bowlby. And I thought, my God, There's the organizational this is the same. It's the this framework. is it. Yeah. Romantic love is an attachment bond. My God. So I wrote up a little article and I sent it to the Journal of uh, Marriage and Family Therapy. And I didn't hear and I didn't hear and I didn't hear. Then I got a letter from Al German. Al German. Yeah. And he said, dear Sue, it's been quite fascinating. Every time I sent it out for review, the, the results are the same. I've sent it out, I think he said, four times. I can't remember now. He said, I've sent it out a number of times. Half the people love it and half of them absolutely hate it. So he said, so I can't send it out anymore. I like it, so I'm publishing it. <laughs> That's Al German. And you see, Bonds of Bargains is the first time in the couple therapy literature, um, it's actually, I think, the first time in the adult literature that anybody actually dared to say romantic love is an attachment bond. And then a year later, Phil Shaver, Phil Shaver and Cindy Hazan yeah, came out with an article. And then another year later, they came out with another article. And it was literally this slow. And I started... Improving EFT, I got a job at Ottawa U. I started doing more studies. I started um, refining EFT and writing about it more and getting more and more convinced by attachment. But adult attachment was like nowhere. It was, there just wasn't. There was uh, Mary Main starting to talk about yeah. coherent frames of mind, but that was very analytic. Yes, right. and it and was all about sort of the original attachment. That's right. Replaying. That's, that's right. The analytic piece, and it was, and all the attachment clinicians. That's there weren't many, and all they were talking about was that you learn to be a certain way in childhood, and then you just repeat it all through your adult life. And I thought, well, that's not true because my couples change. Yeah, they tell me that I've learned this way all my life. But now I'm understanding. <laughs> yeah, and like, so my, my couples are the people who really taught me. Okay. Yeah. And so I started, I connected with Fasheva and he started inviting me to conferences. And I would be, it was very intimidating. I would he's be, a very different kind of researcher than you are. I mean, he's, yes. And he's, he's, he's like also a little bit like a freight train. You know, he's just, he's got his momentum. He's a freight train, all right. But he would say, Sue, you will and come. And a lovely to, guy. Yes, he's a lovely guy. So you will come to this conference. So I'd, <laughs> I'd show that up. Is so I'd show up <laughs> and I'd be like, I remember one on Long Island where I thought, bloody hell, I'm like, I'm here on this panel with all these developmental and social psychologists. I am the only clinician here. And Everett Waters was having a big fight oh, yeah. with Phil Shaver about something. And Phil was going red in the face. And Everett <laughs> Waters was doing the Mary Main School. And Phil Shaver was doing the social psychological yeah. version of adult attachment. Which, which he is, was inventing. Well, he was in inventing it as I was yeah. talking to him. And, right. and as far as I was concerned, he was on the money. And then Everett Waters, I remember, turned to me out of the blue at this damn conference where I'm just on this panel of like, I don't know, 15 academics or something and said to me, you will present tomorrow morning on how this works out in clinical cases. And I'm like, bloody hell. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know anything about attachment. I'm not a behavior. I'm not a developmental person. I'm not a, so but I did. I, I said, all right, then I presented a case, right? 
And Phil was great. Phil was always open and interested and fascinated. And then I met Mario Michelanza. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mario. And we started dialoguing and the field of adult attachment grew and EFT grew and my lab in Ottawa grew. And as it went along, you know, I would, in the early 90s, I was trying to write articles on adult attachment for Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy and I couldn't get them published. Yeah. I couldn't get them published. And I remember going to a conference in Atlanta um, the American Association of Marital and Family Therapy, and it was all narrative therapy. And I remember doing a presentation where I stood up and I started talking about how you could not just focus on cognition, you had to pay attention to emotion, and, and a third of the people left the room. And then I started talking about adult attachment and how dependency there was something called constructive dependency dependency wasn't pathological even though we used words like enmeshment and fusion right, and right, symbiosis right. and codependency yeah. that that was actually a mistake yes and that we were dependent and another third of the people left the room and i think in the end there were maybe five people left <laughs> so i went home and i said to my husband i think i better give this up it's killing me I know it works with my couples. I know adult attachment is the most fascinating thing since sliced bread, but nobody wants to know about it. The time's off. Nobody cares. This I think I'll just 90s. I'll just go and do depression research. Oh, brother. Yeah, and I went to see Les. You get depressed. Yeah, well, I went to see Les Greenberg in in Toronto. He was in Toronto by that time, and he was doing interest. He'd given up the couples. He, you know, he'd sort of gone. He was sort of much more into the individual stuff. And he, I said, can I come and start doing some individual depression research? He said, well, yes, I think that's the best thing to do. And then I went home and thought, um, we're being pretty open in this interview. I went home and thought, sod it. <laughs> I don't care. Can you say that? I don't I'm just know. kidding. <laughs> You can if you're English working class. You already dropped the f bomb. Yeah, sod it. Like I said, um, I don't give a damn. I don't care about any of them. I don't care about the academics, and I don't care about the the reviewers, and I don't and I don't need their bloody research grants. I'll do my own on a shoestring, and all my research studies have been done. I remember explaining to John Gottman once that I'd never had a grant bigger than $80,000 and that I'd done all these outcome studies on my students' passion and my passion and nothing, and he was just gobsmacked, right? I thought, yeah. I don't care about any of them. They can all go to hell. I'm going to do this because this stuff matters. And within a couple of years, something started to shift. Social psychologists started to listen to the adult attachment stuff. Mario Michelanza turned into a research machine like yeah, oh, churning yeah. like, out incredible studies, yeah. right? Um, I remember in the in ninety three, ninety three to ninety five. I remember that's when I first learned about attachment, adult that's right. attachment. I was first. That's when I first heard your name. That's when I first learned about Phil. Yeah, and uh, it was in the Gottman lab, and we started using some some of Phil's measures at that time. But yeah. but it was still like this what is this, you know? It wasn't it wasn't uh Well, and then, you know, I started to connect with people like John Gottman and he was amazing. He came and we um I was te at this point I was at the hospital one day a week I had the uh, marital and family therapy team and we were seeing all the most 
couples with the huge problems, not just marital distress, but all kinds of other problems, and families, and the most distressed couples and families in Ottawa. And we would see these people. I had a team of like 20 clinicians, and we would see these distressed families, and we would do supervision sessions and consultations and assessments. And, you know, I was doing research studies, and I connected with John Gottman, and he invited me out to talk to his team, and he came and talked in Ottawa. We put on a conference for him. Um, I eventually left the hospital and created our own institute and with the clinicians that I trained at the university and at the hospital. And what I remembered, I thought, you know, that John Gottman would be like Neil Jacobson, kind of yeah. um, rather well, they work together patronizing and yeah. rather... No, John's not like you know. So I go out there to this man who's I really respect his research, right? And I feel like the stuff we're doing is completely consonant with his research on relationship yeah. distress. So I go out there, I'm very intimidated. And all I remember is this room where I sat and I talked to all his team and all his students. And what I remember was the silence... Like the students were all up on, tea, on you know, uh, counters and the, the chairs, the room was absolutely full and everyone was crowded in there. And John was at the end of the table with his, ch his chin on his hand. And I don't think Julie was there. Julie wasn't there. And everyone, and what I remember was the silence. And after a while, I started to think, oh my God, you know, I like... <laughs> <laughs> like, like, hey, what you know, maybe, you like, like, maybe, you know, they, maybe they know that for some reason I'm crazy or that all this <laughs> stuff is rubbish or like, uh -huh. and then at one point I said, you know, I've talked to you all day and nobody said anything. And what do you, what do you think? And John Gottman just looked at me and said something like, this is completely fascinating. <laughs> and I thought, Oh my God, he likes it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like Mikey in the movie. Yeah, in right, the, right, in the, right, in the commercial. Yes, in the commercial about the cookies. My God, he likes it. And then we became friends and EFT started to take off from just a little Ottawa clinic. Um, I started to connect with people who wanted to train in other places. Scott Woolley uh, at Alive oh, yeah. University in San Diego said, will you come down here and teach and he said, well, what should we call your training? Why don't you come down for four days? And I said, oh, all right. Well, what should we call it? He said, well, I don't know. We could call it an externship in EFT. I said, all right then. Mm -hmm. So I come down and you know, the first time we do it is got like 20 people in it. And then, you know, Scott's colleagues and students start to get involved you know, and they start bringing me live couples to work with as part of the externships. And that starts to get really interesting. And then other people on externships. And then suddenly I'm flying all over the country, which is kind of problematic because by this time we've adopted two children. Oh, God, And, yeah. um, you know, that was pretty hard. And I didn't do this when they were very small. I wanted to be with them. But they're a little bit older by this time. So suddenly, from nobody wanting to hear me at all, it felt like everyone went nuts. 
And suddenly narrative isn't the big thing that it used to be. And suddenly it's not a crime that I do research. In the beginning, it was yeah, like, yeah. you're just a researcher. Right. You're not a clinician. Well, you can't win. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that in clinical psychology, you just can't win. If you want to do some research, then you're just a re And if you want to do clinical, then you're just clinical. That's right. You know, that, that, that whole thing. That's right. So then it started to take off. And the institute, we, I left the hospital. We had an institute in town. And we decided to cut it in half clinical institute and a not-for-profit organization that we decided to call ICEFT, right. the International Center for Excellence in EFT. And I think at that point I thought, well, we have maybe four or five of us that go around the world and we maybe we give three or four externships a year right. in places like New York. <laughs> 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 and that's not what's happened in the last 12 or so years I mean, we've got to the point where we have 17 outcome studies in EFT, nine process of change studies, really good follow-ups. We've now done a big attachment study with someone called Jim Cohn. <laughs> who's, we've, I've actually even done a brain scan study, for God's sake. And that, what was happening there has translated into, we have, ICEFT has 50 amazing, talented, dedicated trainers who go all over the world. And because we're into attachment, we've deliberately created, I'm not sure any other model of therapy has done this. Maybe ACT has, I don't know. Maybe Steve Hayes, because he talks about community. But um, we've deliberately created learning communities. There's now 45 um, EFT centers and communities all over the world where clinicians get together and we had to create a supervision structure and a trainer structure. And then people asked, they wanted to be registered, certified in EFT. And at first I said, no, no, you know, I hate bureaucracy. I'm not doing that. That's just baloney. And then people kept coming and saying, no, you can't do this. You've got to, you've got to have a whole training program and you've got to take us through for, into competency. And then when we get competent, you've got to certified. give us something. So I thought, oh, bloody hell. That's a lot of work. Dude, I, I was it. trained as, a, as an adult educator. Yeah. Right, so then right. that so training got, kicked in. <laughs> and I thought, good. okay, fine. I'll do it. We'll do it. So we create, we create a structure. We create a whole way of learning EFT. We create better and better trainings. The trainers group grows. We get better and better at training to the point now where we have actually two research studies on our four-day externships. You know, I think, I don't think I'm egotistical when I say we give the best training in couple therapy on this planet ever. Uh, that's the feedback we get. You know, we get five out of fives on all of our evaluations. And I think it's because we put our heart into it. We're not into it to make money. And we're not into it to be popular, famous. We're into it, the people who work with me are driven by the same passion that keeps me going and that makes me thrilled when a new couple walk into my sessions and I realize I'm hopefully going to help them, but I'm also going to get discover things from them. I'm going to learn from them. This passion to understand what human love's about, to link clinically with attachment theory, which is 
gold. It, I can't. It never lets me down. It's very rich. It's very generative and very rich. It has rich. never yeah. let yeah. me down once in a session. It has helped me understand every single client who's walked into my office. I mean, obviously, there are some clients that I can't help in the way I want to help them. But attachment theory always helps me understand the drama, helps me get my emotional balance, helps me listen to somebody's emotions, helps me see somebody, see past their problem or their diagnosis to who they are. It always takes me to a deeper level. So the people I work with are fueled by that passion. And we are interested in creating communities and taking the field of couple therapy into new places, which we are. I mean, you know, we're I just did a... So we opened the conversation with. You're, you're now taking it online. And also, we just... I'm very proud of the fact that the Hold Me Tight educational program, which is based on the book, is now being adopted by the Heart Institute in my city. The Heart Institute? The Heart Institute came to me and said... What is that? Is that like it's cardiologists? A, yes. Oh. It's, they said, listen, we've read the research that the best predictor of whether you have another heart attack, it's the quality, <laughs> it's the quality of your most intimate relationship that, def- that predicts best yes. whether you're going to yes. have another. Uh, so our patients' wives are telling us that we are letting them down that we are giving all these stress programs to the patients and in fact the wives are dying and the relationships are dying and when the relationships go downhill our patients don't take their meds and they won't turn up to class and they have another heart attack. So would you come and do this program? So we're now adapting the whole meter education program based on EFT to things like heart patients and I've already had people Ask me if they can do manuals for postpartum depression, for diabetes. Well, this is one of the things I need to talk to you about. I just talked with Sue Carter. Uh, she was just visiting UVA, and we, we talked about how if you take basically essentially any health problem and you factor in the quality of social relationships yep. for the individual going through that health yep. problem, it makes a huge difference. You better believe. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I got to say, I, I don't doubt that you have such a great training program going on. I feel the, the, that passion that you're talking about. That's one of the great things about knowing you, Sue, because I sensed that real interest in what you were doing and what this was, was all about. And I think that's, that's one of the key ingredients in making not only something pro-social really happen, but also one of the key ingredients in grasping for better understanding, deeper understanding. You got to want it. Yeah, it's got to be like a hunger. It's so interesting because people say, well, why did you leave England? And it's very hard to explain. I mean, I felt imprisoned. I felt constrained. But I also felt starved. And I think what I said to myself is, it doesn't matter so much if I have a happy life or an easy life. Um, But I want a rich life. I want to be alive. And I can't be alive here. So I have to get out. And I think that has always pulled me in my life to go for what's rich. You know, what's really interesting is now, at this advanced age, <laughs> I mean, I do, I do crazy things in my life, right? I, you know, adopt, you've got wisdom. Yeah, like, you know, I decide to adopt two children and my wonderful husband goes along with me. And you know, I, I, I make these crazy leaps in my life. So about eight years ago, I decided to learn Argentine tango. 
which is really stupid, okay? If you've never no, danced in your yeah. life, you have no balance, you have co the coordination of a large snail. <laughs> you know, Argentine tango, if people don't know it, is a bloody complicated dance. And it's much more, it's not ballroom dancing on no. steroids. It's like, it's, it's not over-sexualized nonsense like you see on Dancing <laughs> with the Stars. It's a very intricate, complex, intimate conversation that happens to music in a, in a, period in a in a 15 minute period of time because you dance four dances with somebody in a row and the reason for that is it takes you one dance often to tune in but what fascinates me is put it into movement it's the same thing as you do in therapy and you do in relationships and it plugs me in like I went and watched a Malonga the first one and I sat there and I thought okay, there's something magical happening in this room. This isn't ballroom dancing. These people aren't following set steps and patterns. So how the hell do these people move together in all these different movements on time in the same way, in complete synchrony? How do they do that? I want to do that. So I went to my tango teacher and he said what I knew. Well, basically, you're too old. You have no balance. Your coordination is terrible. You've never danced before. This is crazy. And I said, yes. So shut up and teach me. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, what it makes you think you can do this? I said, well, first of all, there's something here that's the same as my work. Yeah. And so I'm, you've, got, you've got that. And I'm passionate. But also, I'm just me. So I'll just work 18 times harder than everyone else and I'll do it. And... When I dance, it's the same kind of discovery as when you sit with a couple and they move into their emotions, which they don't know about and that's unfamiliar to them and they don't understand their dance they're doing together. And you go in with them and suddenly a new piece of music emerges and somebody does a new step and the other person, instead of blocking them or moving away from them and going off balance, joins them. And suddenly this beautiful new thing happens. And that's just like tango. But so it's, there's something there about human connection and disconnection that fascinates me. And I think it really did start in the pub. And I was just going to say, it reminds me of you watching your dad have that conversation with the person visiting the, the pub. That's and, right. And seeing that, that emotional dimension in addition to that informational exchange. That's right. Yeah. And you know, that pub, it wasn't really the cliche of a pub. It was actually a community center. Uh -huh. The old people would come in sure. and my dad would give them a beer and they'd sit with one beer and they'd play drafts and they'd talk to each other and everyone would go up and talk to, hello, Lil, how are you doing, Lil? How's your cat? My cat's fine. I mean, people basically didn't say anything. I you know, They that. didn't say anything. Yeah. Oh, right? I know. But it's, but it's about community it's and about connection. Community and connection. You know, we went on holiday to Morocco, and on the one hand, I've gone through all the books in Morocco, and I've I've looked at all the historical facts about Morocco, and I understand what I want to buy in Morocco, and I'm I'm a typical tourist. You know, I'm I'm sort of devouring Morocco from this sort mm -hmm. of consumer point of view. Yeah. And somebody said to me, "What is the most important moment that happened?" And all I remember, and this is what we're talking about, okay 
is I was, it was in Meknes and I was walking through this souk and there's women, elderly ladies occasionally begging. And there's this figure of this old woman all hunched over. You can't see her face and her, she's holding her hands above her head in supplication, she wants arms. And we walk past her and, I, and suddenly I can't walk past her and I say to my husband, give me all the money, that, well, how much money have we got? He said, we haven't got hardly any money. We've only got about $5. I said, give, give, give it all to me. He said, no, don't do this. I said, shut up. Just give me the money. <laughs> so I take the money and I go over and I can't even remember how I knew this. But somebody had taught me the Arabic for bless you, mother, right? No, not bless you. Something like, um, this is for you, mother. I knew a little bit of Arabic. So I, I say to her, um, I put the money in her hands and I say to her, this is for you, mother, right? Now, she's a stranger. I don't know who she is, right? She looks up at me. I can't talk about this without crying. She looks up at me, and in perfect English, she says, God bless you, my child. And that's all I really remember about Morocco, <laughs> because um, that's it. I mean, that's what matters in that's life. It, and right I burst into tears. And my husband came and grabbed me. And all I remember is that suddenly I'm in this stupid tourist bus and I don't give a frig about the tourist <laughs> book anymore. <laughs> like, you know, or the trinkets that I bought in the market. And that's it. That's it. I mean, that's what life's all about, isn't it? Yep. What else is it about? There's I nothing don't know. else that it's about. So we have to study that yeah. because without that, life's meaningless, isn't it? This is what we have to understand. And you know what, Jim? If we don't understand this, we're going to die as a species. So psychology, as far as I'm concerned, needs to get off its bloody academic <laughs> butt you know, and teach my, people this stuff. One of my old mentors, and we'll just close with this, one of my old mentors said to me literally a week before he died, he was, he was struggling with cancer, Lisi Crest. He said, you know, the, the problem with psychologists is that they're not interested enough in what people really do. <laughs> <laughs> in what people really do. So let's go to the pub. Yes, All that's right. right. Thank you, Sue. You're welcome. Okay, folks, that's a wrap. <laughs> Part two is over. And with that, we say farewell for now to Sue Johnson. And thanks, too, of course, for her candor, passion, and for all the hard work she's logged in order to make life a little bit better for all of us. Thank you, Sue. I couldn't be happier that I get to talk and think and laugh with you like this. Folks, the music for this episode of Circle of Willis was written and performed by Tom Stoffer of Tucson, Arizona. For information about how to purchase Tom's music, as well as the music of his band, The New Drakes, check the About page at circleofwillispodcast.com. Circle of Willis is produced by Siva Vaidyanathan and brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. And Circle of Willis is a member of the Tiege FM Podcast Network. Find out more about that at teej.fm. 
Special thanks to VQR editor Paul Reyes, WTJU-FM general manager Nathan Moore, as well as NPR reporter and co-founder of the very popular podcast Invisibilia, Lulu Miller. If you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes and letting us know how we're doing? It's super easy and we'd like it. Okay, we really do, so do that. It's easy, like I said already. Or go the more direct route by sending us an email at circleofwillispod at gmail.com. That's circleofwillispod at gmail.com. You can also contact us by visiting circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact tab. Sometimes it feels like I can't breathe because I'm saying too many words. Stay tuned, folks. I'm feeling like we're on a bit of a roll here at the old podcast headquarters. Next up is my conversation with Brian Nosick, social psychologist, open science advocate, and indeed the founder and director of the Center for Open Science right here in Charlottesville. As always, lots more to think about. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.